Hey guys, welcome to the shit show of my 20s. I'm so excited that you guys are here. My name's Sophia. I started this podcast in the beginning of April and I got furloughed at the end of March. And quite honestly, it was so hard for me to comprehend and deal with that. I was like, I have two choices right now. I can start the podcast that I've always wanted to start or I can let this really deter me and start emotional eating and just sit on the couch and do nothing. And I decided to go with the first choice. And I'm so glad that I did because I've got to meet so many inspiring people from all over the world. And I hope that you guys see yourselves in some of these stories because I've just been having so much fun. This has been lighting me up so much. And I'm really glad that I put myself out there and decided to start it. You know, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to start it. And I'm so glad that I just did that. And I know as an introvert, it's been pretty hard to like put myself out there, talk in front of a camera, talk to all these people I don't know. But I feel like this has been such a growing experience for me. And I feel like I need to share that with you guys because maybe there's something in your life that excites you but kind of scares you at the same time. And maybe it's time to step into that. Today's guest is Helena. Love chatting with her. We talk about how she got into speech writing, how she's able to create these speeches that go viral, and tips for public speaking. So let's get started. Okay, so thank you so much, Helena, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Love to know about your story, any career changes you've had so far. How did you get to the place you're at right now? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, So my early 20s were all over the place career-wise. I went to film school and I intended to work in Hollywood forever. I got here and I started working as a camera assistant, which is basically the person on set who is in charge of all the camera gear. They set up the equipment, the lenses, they keep everything in focus. And I originally thought it would be kind of a creative job. I thought we'd be picking what the shots look like. And, you know, I thought I would have more influence over like what the image actually looked like in that career path. And I realized it was super technical. It was basically knowing all of these like calculations and math and computer science to some degree, now that most film cameras are actually just computers. Um, and I realized that I hated it. So I spent about a year, two years ish doing that. And then I ended up injuring my back and that ended up kind of being a wonderful miracle because it forced me to stop doing that job that I was hating. Um, my physical therapist was like, you can't do this for six weeks. And in the meantime, uh, one of my friends who was an assistant director hired me to help him on a show. An assistant director is basically the stage manager of a film set. So they keep everyone on track. They you know, are in charge of the schedule. They get all of the actors through hair, makeup, and wardrobe, and then they keep everything running throughout the entire day. And... I loved it. It was so much fun working with all of the different actors, working with every different part of set, et cetera. But the thing that I hated was the lifestyle. So basically what they don't tell you in film school is that the average working day on a film set is 12 hours long. That's the minimum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and since I was usually the first person on set and the last person to leave because of my job, it would be more like 
14, 16 hours a day minimum. And that doesn't get better with time. It's not like you just kind of grind away in your 20s. And then when you get into your 30s and 40s and 50s, like the hours go down. That's just how it is. That's how the industry is. I'm hoping coronavirus will actually force it to change a little bit. Um, but I kind of was looking at all the people who were above me and thinking, oh, wow, I really don't want to be them. Like a lot of the people that I was working with were, you know, chain smoking, 40 year old, don't have a family, divorced, have no relationship with their kids, don't have kids, kind of generally miserable. And then I read a statistic that my job that I was in as an assistant director, the average lifespan of an assistant director is 55 years old. And I was like, wow. <laughs> um, so that really caused me to question a lot of things. I was already feeling burned out myself. And then to just recognize the fact that it was going to have, like, staying in that job would have kind of long-term ramifications for my life. I started looking at other things. I went through, like, a whole year where I was like, what the hell do I do with my life? Like, should I become a doctor? Should I, like, go back to school? Should I get a graduate degree? And eventually, I kind of fell into my now job. So I was playing around with what to do, and I knew that I really loved TED Talks. And so I decided to go to a TEDx event in Los Angeles and thinking, okay, maybe I'll get involved as a volunteer. It's a mainly, most, what most people don't know about TEDx is that it's almost entirely run by volunteers. Um, so I went and it was terrible. <laughs> so that ended up being fortunate because it forced me to think, okay, maybe I can do this myself. So I signed up for TED's training in Vancouver to learn how to be a TEDx organizer, went to Vancouver, spent literally all the money I had. It was expensive. It was like, you know, a few thousand dollars. And at the time in my early tw- or in my mid twenties, that was like my entire bank account. So I wiped out my bank account, went to Vancouver, got the training and like immediately the first day I was there, I was like, these are my people. Like, where have they been all my life? Um, And so that started out as a volunteer job. And I ended up, you know, I got a job at HBO. And so during the day I was working at HBO in the studio and then nights, weekends, mornings, any shred of free time, I was doing all of this volunteering for TEDx. And that's how I got involved with speakers. And then eventually it became so clear to me that I was really good at it and I should probably do that instead of working in Hollywood. So eventually I left my job at HBO after having done this as a side hustle for about three years and started my own business. And how did you get into public speaking? What was like your first speech like? Yeah. So it's funny. I actually don't like, I hardly even resonate with being in public (laughs) speaking because I like just, you know, never intended to get into that career path. I think my first public speech was in 4-H. I don't know if any listeners are familiar with that, but it's a, I grew up in Colorado and it's this kind of um, almost like farming organization for kids. Um, So you pick a project every year, people will be doing things like cattle and goats and chickens and like veterinary science and stuff like that. Um, And then you spend all year and it ends in a fair. And so as part of doing 4-H, I had to do a speech every year. And so that's how I got my first exposure to public speaking. And then when I started working with TEDx, I immediately dove into working with speakers once again, but I had no training whatsoever in public speaking. I think for me, the thing that really ended up actually coming in handy and learning how speeches work and how to put one together 
and what makes one successful or not was that when I was first starting to work with TEDx as a volunteer, I was doing a ton of volunteering for TED Translators, which is TED's volunteer organization that transcribes and translates all of their talks. So they basically put the closed captions on the talks. And so I was spending hundreds of hours basically typing up the content of these speeches that were already finished. And it ranged from like speeches that were amazing to speeches that were absolute trash. And I think spending so much time just literally typing slowly and matching the words to the speech made me really just kind of understand speech writing on an intuitive level. And how do you like come up with speeches? Do you like come up with a template? Do you have some ideas together? Do you fully write out the speech before you perform it? How do you plan? Yeah. So with TED and TEDx, they fully write everything out before they perform it. A lot of the speakers that I work with now that aren't doing TED Talks don't fully write it out. They more write out a series of talking points or an outline or something a little bit looser. Um, But for TED and TEDx, you write out the entire script word for word, and then you learn it and then you deliver it. Um, With TED and TEDx especially, there is no template. And anyone who tells you there's a template is lying because we always are kind of making it custom with the speaker, depending on what the speaker is talking about, depending on, you know, what argument they're making. I think in general though, if there were a template, um, the main thing you have to know about organizing a speech is that I see speaking as like problem solving. So at the beginning of each speech that you're doing, you have to introduce a problem that either the audience is or isn't already aware of. And then your job in the course of that speech is to solve it. And how do you balance like a speech from like focusing too much on you or in like really like catering to the audience as well and not sharing too many stories and focusing on lessons. Like how do you balance that? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think a lot of times people swing too far in one direction or the other, either they're not sharing nearly enough about themselves and the audience is kind of like, who is this person and why should I trust them? Or they swing in the opposite direction and it's all kind of storytelling. And it just depends on the format too. Like if you're speaking at the Moth, which is a really popular um, public speaking platform in the US, like by all means, only stories. Just stick to your personal stories because that's what the format is for. TED is somewhere in the middle of that. So they want it to be a speech where you're really, you know, giving the audience a big idea and sharing knowledge with them, but they also want it to be a speech that only you can give. So that does involve bringing in your expertise, your experience, and your storytelling. Um, I think with TED and TEDx, the key is to just make sure that you're sticking to this narrow path and only keeping things in or out of the speech that really serve the big idea, mainly because TED and TEDx talks on average are eight to 12 minutes. So you just don't have a lot of time to wander off path at all. You have to be really, really laser focused. And how have you been able to help people create speeches that go viral? Is there like, yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the speeches that I've worked on for TED and TEDx now have, you know, well over a million, three million, five million views. And I personally think it all comes down to the idea. Unfortunately, I don't think you can trick your way. I don't think there's any hack that you can do because really when you think about going viral, it means inherently that like 
strangers have to love your content. So a lot of people think that they can just, you know, if enough friends and family watch it, it will start this chain of virality. But you have to rely on people who have no idea who you are, what they, what you do. They have no stake in you in order to like your speech. And so it really all comes down to having really compelling content. And then certainly there are some tricks you can do, like having a really amazing title seems to help. A lot of times people will title their speeches with these super vague things, um, and then it doesn't give anyone any reason to click on it. So you have to find that balance between having a title that you know, gives people a reason to click, that's compelling, that doesn't give it all away, but isn't so vague that they actually care. And uh, yeah, and it, it is actually kind of amazing how these speeches can go viral quickly or overnight. I've had a lot of speeches that um, do nothing for months, like they're only getting a few hundred or a thousand views, and then suddenly they jump up a lot of times because of a, you know, an event in the news. So for example, I worked on a speech about um, sex trafficking in Thailand, and that talk got, you know, 100 views here, 1,000 views there. And then I don't know if you recall, but a few years ago, I think it must have been 2018 maybe, um, when they had that those boys that were trapped in the cave in Thailand. Uh, that event, because of all the Google searches, I think, that people were doing around Thailand and statelessness and all of that, it basically triggered this talk, and that talk ended up going viral. But it all comes down to having a really good idea in the first place. I can tell you that all the talks that I've worked on that went viral, they all were great concepts already. It just is, you can't, this is something I learned in Hollywood actually, is a lot of times you'll, it's especially obvious here in Los Angeles because there's billboards everywhere for movies. And what you'll see, interestingly, is that the movies that are actually not very good oftentimes have the most advertising because they're trying to like, force everyone to go see this movie. Whereas a lot of times the movies that are really good or that people are really excited about don't have as much advertising just because it doesn't require it. And I found that a lot of people try to take that approach with video content online is they think that they can just buy enough Facebook ads or buy enough YouTube ads or whatever to cause their speech to go viral. And it just does not work. You have to have a good speech to begin with. And what tips would you give to someone who is uncomfortable speaking in front of people? Yeah, great question. I get this all the time. Um, I think the biggest thing is to recognize that what your audience does not want is perfection. I think a lot of times people think that they have to get up and be basically an actor on a stage and have like all oh, the perfect posture and voice and body movements and the perfect zinger one lines. And that just isn't the case anymore. I think especially with, you know, millennials and now Gen Z being the majority of the workforce, like we grew up with things like YouTube and we've had, you know, phones like this in front of our faces for the longest time. And what we've gotten used to are these kind of one-on-one -on -one personal conversations that we see on YouTube, online, on social media, TikTok, whatever. And so anymore, public speaking is really kind of drifted in the direction, and TED especially, drifted in the direction of very conversational. 
So people are wanting more of the kind of real, authentic, friendly, casual conversation like you would have at a bar or a coffee shop, more so than that perfect poise, like almost inhuman actor. So for anyone who's very afraid of public speaking, I think the key is really to focus on your content first. Focus on creating a really great speech that you're really excited about. You love the content. You're excited to deliver it. And then, you know, gradually get yourself into a position where you're feeling more and more comfortable sharing that. Whether that's, you know, a lot of times my clients will start by sharing things on like IGTV or YouTube or whatever, and then gradually work their way up to applying to bigger and bigger podcasts or speaking on bigger and bigger stages as they get comfortable. But the key in all of it is just to remember that people just want you and your message. They don't want you to be this fake actor who's performing for them. People straight up don't want that. That's the opposite of what people want. And how do you keep people engaged throughout your talk? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is editing, actually. Um, I read a quote a while back that was like, the the magic of writing is not writing, it's editing. And I really believe that to be true. Um, you know, with a TED or TEDx talk, I think part of the reason the format is so successful and the reason why it's you know, become the most famous public speaking platform in the history of the planet, probably, is that they're very short. So when you're speaking in eight or 12 minutes, that's only, you know, depending on how quickly you're speaking, it's only a thousand, fifteen hundred words or so. It is so short. And because of that, you just have to be laser focused. You cannot have any fluff. You have to edit it down to the bone, basically. Um, And I think that really helps people be engaged because a lot of times the reason why things aren't interesting, um, and I think you'll see this actually with like new formats like TikTok, right? TikTok is so short that it makes it more engaging because you cannot have any fluff. You can't have any excess. Like by definition of a TikTok, it has to be just laser focused and on point um, or you're swiping on to the next one. And so I think, you know, with most speeches, the reason why they're boring is because they do not have any sense of direction. They're way too long. People oftentimes think they need 60 minutes when really what they need is 20 minutes. So being laser focused is always helpful for engagement. Always, always. And how do you condense everything you want to say into like 12 minutes? Yeah. So that's, I think that's the trick is not condensing. So a lot of times people will be like, oh, I've been sub, I've been studying this topic for the last 30 years. And now I have to do a 12 minute talk about 30 years worth of knowledge. And that's not how it works. So the, the trick is really to just pick a teeny tiny slice, like only one single thing, um, and then make that your speech. And then the benefit of that is that you never run out of content. Because if you're only taking a tiny slice of your work, you could do a thousand speeches. You're not going to run out of stuff to say. Um, And by only picking a slice, you're also going to be focused enough that you can cover it in eight to 12 minutes without kind of burning out yourself or your audience. A lot of times people will try to do that cramming method where they cram their like hour long keynote into 12 minutes. And what ends up happening is it's just, you can't do it. It's too confusing for the audience. You either are skimming so quickly across the surface that they never understand what you're talking about, or it's just you lose all of the good stories, all of the interesting insights, because you're just trying to do kind of like an overview. So pick a slice, stick to it, do another talk, do a different slice, you know, and move on. 
And is there any speeches that you helped write that like really stand out to you? Maybe a couple that really stand out to you. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I'm trying to think who stands out the most. Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, I think one that I found really satisfying was I worked with a speech or I worked with a guy on a speech that uh, was about local news. So, which is to me a very unsexy, uninteresting topic until I, until I started talking with him and realized it was fascinating. So basically this guy, Chuck Plunkett, um, was a whistleblower against his own newspaper. So he wrote a, he was in charge of the editorial board. He wrote a scathing, um, page basically against his own newspaper and then published it and managed to get it past everyone who would have stopped it basically um, and started this whole you know conversation nationally around the value of local news and how problematic it is that you know all of these basically hedge funds are buying up local newspapers and running them into the ground and I think what was so satisfying about working on his talk was that a it was just a message that was so important to him um, and such a personal story but I think He's someone who always avoided being on video, on camera. He never did speeches. He considered himself to be a writer. Like he did not get in front of a camera. And it was just interesting to see him go from being very kind of hesitant about the whole process to being so confident and so empowered. And if I recall, he got like multiple, you know, massive rounds of applauses during his speech, um, which was just so satisfying to see. Let's see, another one that stands out. Oh my gosh, there have just been so many. I think one that was really fun that I worked on recently was I worked on a talk about uh, fish sex with a marine biologist. And what I really love about that talk and something that I've just found to be the case over and over again, especially with Ted, is that a lot of times if you just are a really good storyteller and you have a really engaging and interesting angle, you can trick people into listening to things that they might not be interested in. So I found that climate change is often one of those things. A lot of times people don't want to hear a speech about climate change because it's just too damn depressing. And you know, it can make people feel really hopeless. So I've found that with climate change, we can oftentimes trick people into listening to and getting engaged with that topic through a really interesting angle. So in her case, she was really talking about fish sex, which is of course fun and funny. Like fish sex, as it turns out, is very, very weird. Um, but at the end of the day, the talk was really about how humans are interrupting the ability of fish to reproduce. And it all relates to climate change, the acidification of oceans, et cetera. And so you kind of trick people into listening to this thing that's really fun and funny. And then you actually get them to care about something that they might not otherwise have cared about. And what does your writing process look like with them? Do they write out the speech and then take it to you and you edit it? How does it work? Yeah. So with most speakers, especially in TED and TEDx, we're going through several different revisions. So either they'll outline it on their own and then send it to me for feedback, or we'll start with an outline together. And then usually we'll do a phone call, talk about our notes. They revise the speech, send it back to me. I edit it. We talk about the notes. They revise it, send it back to me. So I think with most TED and TEDx speakers, I guess it's between five and 12 drafts per speaker. So 
it's an iterative process. And depending on the timeline, it usually would take about two months between the time that I'm first starting working with someone and between the time they're stepping on stage. What is something lighting you up right now? Ooh, yeah. Well, so I think something that I've just been so heads down and engrossed in in the last few uh, months is really just like how to run my business with coronavirus. Um, so I, last year in 2019, I, about 90%, 95% maybe of my revenue came from live events. So basically when coronavirus hit, like my entire calendar was wiped clean, um, which was terrifying at first. I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, do I have to go back to a corporate job? Like, what am I going to do? Especially when experts were starting to say, you know, there won't be live events for six months, nine months, a year, year and a half. Like that was terrifying. Um, And so I really quickly threw together a plan, which is something that I'd been wanting to do for a long time, which was just to do an online group coaching program for speakers. And so I launched my first online group coaching program super fast in April. And then I just wrapped up that program now with my students. And it was so much fun. I loved it so much. Um, I just love working in the group atmosphere. It's so fun to see everyone kind of encouraging each other and supporting each other. And so it's definitely something I'm going to do again, because it was just a phenomenal experience. So I think for me, that's been the silver lining of the pandemic is even though it was terrifying, it completely changed how I'm doing business. Um, It ended up opening up this whole nother revenue stream that I never, you know, I didn't think it would become the main part of my business. And currently it is. And what is something that most people don't know about you? Ooh, you know, they ask this on a lot of podcasts. So I feel like I'm running out of things to say. Um, something that people don't know about me. My cat, my first cat as a child was a uh, lady cat and I named it Hooker not realizing what that meant. So I had this little cat as a child named Hooker. That's something most people don't know. I think my parents should have intervened, but they did not. So what can you do? And what's the biggest challenge you've overcome and how? Ooh. Um, huh. That's a good question. I think the biggest challenge probably is just navigating my career. It's just been so completely all over the place. And, you know, obviously this is the more of the norm for millennials and Gen Z, but like for my parents, they started a career at 21 and they are still in that career now in their seventies and there was no change. Um, And that's the case with most of the boomers. Right. Uh, So I think, navigating changing career paths so many times and so radically has been, you know, the biggest, it's been both incredibly fun at times, but it's also been incredibly challenging just because, you know, all of the change and self-doubt and like, should I pursue this thing? Should I not? Should I just stick to what I know? Um, All of those mental debates, I think would be by far the biggest challenge that I've overcome. And what helped you through those pivots? Yeah. Oof. I don't know. Some of the pivots were rough and some of them were easy. Some of them happened accidentally. I think the the TED one was interesting because that happened very kind of slowly and organically and accidentally over the course of years. I really, when I started working 
for volunteering for TEDx, I had no plan whatsoever to make it a career. It wasn't even like a thought. Um, and so I think in that case, it was kind of smooth and easy. And then really the tricky thing became just when I started my own business, I didn't know a damn thing about business. Like I just, I had no business training whatsoever. My mom has her own business, but her business, again, she's been doing it forever. And like her, the only advertising or marketing she does is she has her name and the phone number or in the phone book. Um, and so <laughs> learning the ins and outs of business, learning how to market, learning how to network, like all of those things, accounting, it was all completely brand new and foreign to me. And so I think for the first few years, and I feel like I'm still in this mode to some degree, um, it's just a constant like learning, failing, improving, learning, failing, improving, you know, cycle of just chaos. Um, it doesn't feel like there's any sort of respite from, from the learning process, which at times it's fun. And at times it's incredibly tiring and frustrating, but at the end I stand by it. Now I'm just trying to get all of my friends to start their own businesses because it's so empowering compared to working at a corporate job. Like I worked for, like, it's just, incredible to be able to make my own schedule and, you know, live my life the way I see fit. You know, part of my goal this, this half, this part of the year is to only work on Tuesdays through Thursdays. And that's not entirely worked out, but I'm working in that direction. And that's something that I never, ever, ever could have done in a corporate job or if I had someone else as my own boss, but I'm my own boss. So I get to decide what to do. And that's been amazing. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you wish you would have known before you started your business? Oh my gosh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I think the biggest thing that I wish I'd known is I really just was not aware of how people get clients now for online businesses. Like, again, my mom gets clients because she has her name in the phone book and that's been working and she's been paying all the bills for, you know, 40 years based on having her name in the phone book. Um, whereas <laughs> for the modern marketer, you know, you really have to be creating a ton of content. You have to be online. You have to be doing podcasts like this. You have to be networking with people. You have to be teaching classes. You have to be doing all of these things to grab people um, and basically sell them on you in a very natural way. Um, and so I think I didn't realize that up front. So I wasted a ton of time on things like cold emails uh, that went nowhere. I spent months sending cold emails to people thinking that that might work, that maybe if I just email them and then they've heard of me that they'll hire me and it just did not work that way. And so I found that the thing that's had the most success is everything that all the online marketers are doing now, which is creating free content, getting on podcasts, teaching in other people's groups for free um, and doing all of that kind of almost goodwill to build up enough trust with a potential audience that they're willing to buy my services or my products or what have you. But I think I just, I had no idea that that was going to be the case. You know, I thought it was like definitely an, if you build it, they will come situation. Like I put my website online and now I'm in business and everyone hires me and that is not how it works. So I think that's the biggest thing. And can you go into um, selling in a natural way? Yeah. Well, so I think, I think the key now, and you'll see this all over the place online is that People put out a ton of free content 
and that ropes in people. And then you might be, you know, you might be following someone on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or Facebook or whatever for months or years before you ever buy from them. Um, but you've been consuming so much of their content that you really trust them, whether it's reading their Instagram posts or watching their IGTVs or watching their TikToks or whatever. You do that long enough and you gain a sense of trust in someone. And then may- maybe if it comes around time for you to, you know, need their services or buy their product, they'll buy from you. Um, but that's a much longer sales cycle. It's a much like less direct way of getting clients, but it seems to be the way that's working in 2020 for most online entrepreneurs. And what is something that you're learning right now? Ooh, something that I'm learning right now. Um, I think for me, just because this is the first time I've launched an online course, I've been very engrossed in figuring out how to take what I normally do with speakers one-on-one and figure out how to do that in a group setting, especially in a way that requires kind of less hand-holding from me. So I think the hardest part of that process, and I think for all of us, we do this to some degree with our zone of genius. We just know how to do things. We do them without thinking and we never have to explain our process to anyone because we just do it. And so for me, that's been the hardest thing is almost kind of reverse engineering what I do and then being able to teach it to people instead of just me doing it instinctively. And did you notice like from having a group coaching program, they get to benefit off each other versus one-on-one For sure. Yeah. And I mean, this is the case that I've noticed this many times with TED and TEDx before. Some TEDx's, you know, coach people in groups, some don't. Uh, You know, same with TED. TED has some interaction with the speakers, but a lot of times it can be really helpful for motivation just because the A plus all star students will be doing their best work. And that will motivate the people who are basically at the bottom of the group who are behind for whatever reason or struggling for whatever reason, seeing those people really thrive will motivate them to do better. And it also works, you know, just in terms of content too, because speakers will see each other do things and they'll realize, oh, I either want to do that in my own speech or I don't. Um, So certainly I'm teaching them a ton of stuff, but they're also learning by observation from each other and motivating and hyping each other up. Mm -hmm. And how are your 20s like? And what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Oof. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think my 20s were extremely chaotic. Maybe they weren't. Um, But just being in, in terms of all over the place, in terms of job, going from being a camera assistant to an assistant director to then, you know, volunteering for TEDx, working at HBO, leaving HBO, starting my own business. Um, I've lived in, you know, four different apartments. Luckily, my city has been consistent. I've been in LA the entire time. Um, but it's been all over the place. And I think in retrospect, that was great because I tested out all of these things. I decided that I did or didn't like them and then eventually found my career path. Um, I started my business when I was 28, I believe. Um, so, you know, I think by, by the end of my twenties, I was wrapping it up. I met my fiance when I was 26. So I was sort of, I was sort of on the path by the end of my twenties, but I think the biggest advice I would just give myself would be to test things out and let things not be perfect and all figured out in your twenties, because, you know, you're going to have another 30, 40 years ahead of you. And I know a lot of people who have been hesitant to 
to try the things that they want to do or to jump ship on a career that they don't like because they feel like it's too late. And I definitely had this whole it's too late conversation many times in my mid-20s, like, oh, I'm 25. It's too late to change my career. And that is just so not true at all. Um, In fact, it's easier to change now than when you're 40, as I've seen from you know, some of the people in their forties that I know that have tried to change jobs, it's just harder. So try out all the things, you know, leave your job, try a new job. You can always go back. It's not too late. Just, you know, your twenties, I think for, are for figuring things out and figuring out what you like and what you want to do. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you? Um, you can find me at my website, helenabowen.com. And then on all social media platforms is at Helena speaking. My main one is Instagram. So at Helena speaking on Instagram. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love if you can leave me a review on iTunes, please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.